Do you ever get discouraged by all the rebellion and wickedness in our world today? Do you tire of the evil and injustice that comes upon people who are undeserving of that evil and wickedness? Does all the division and strife in our world today weary you? And let me ask one more question. Do you ever get discouraged by all the rebellion and wickedness in your own heart? As we look at Genesis 6 this morning, I want you to realize that even when rebellion and wickedness abound, the Lord remains true to his promises. The Lord remains true to his promises. First, I want you to see that the Lord limits rebellion. Let's read Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. <clears throat> now we have one of the more difficult passages uh, to translate and understand uh, in our Bibles. Okay, So we're going to acknowledge that up front. First question that comes to mind are, who are these sons of God? Who are these sons of God? There are two main interpretations. One of the more modern ones is that the sons of God here refers to the sons of Seth, or as we've been talking about, the seed of the woman, the, or the offspring of the woman. In other words, the godly lineage began to see the, the daughters of uh, Cain, and they begin to intermarry, un, unsaved with saved, if we, as we would say in our day. Uh, that's one interpretation of uh, this passage. Uh, I believe uh, the, the second. Okay, So the second one is that sons of God refers to divine beings. Divine beings. In other words, uh, and angels is a general category. Within angels we see in the scriptures we have archangels. We have uh, watchers in the book of Daniel. And, uh, and so, so we kind of have different, there's like God, the Lord, the most high God, and then we have lesser spiritual beings that God created. <clears throat> and we see them referred to as the sons of God, particularly in Job, and then there's a psalm that talks about it. Anywhere else in the scriptures that sons of God appears, it's referring to angelic beings or beings that are of divine nature. Uh, so that's the first reason why I believe that that's what this refers to, the supernatural interpretation, as it's called. Uh, <clears throat> second reason that I believe that it's referring to the angels is because their offspring are giant, mighty men. Nephilim here probably means giants. In other translations, it's translated as such. There's no reason to believe that Seth's lineage combined with Cain's lineage would produce giants or any other kind of special offspring, right? I mean, they're, 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 
This combination is resulting in giants being born or, and, and with special strength. And then the third reason why I believe that sons of God is referring to angelic beings is because of First and Second Peter and Jude take the angelic position. Uh, in First Peter 3, 18 through 20, Second Peter 2, 4, and Jude verse 6. <clears throat> they, believe, they take this interpretation of the Genesis 6 passage by referring to the book of Enoch. Okay, and the book of Enoch, was a, a, it's not a scripture book, it's not divinely inspired, but it would be a book that was circulated in Second Temple period time that was very popular, and it was a story about what happened in Genesis 6. Notice I said it was a story about it. And so it was a story that told what people believed back in those times. Some of you were, uh, can remember back in the 90s when the Left Behind series was out. And that was a, a set of stories that were based upon the beliefs of dispensational believers as far as the return of Christ. So the book of Enoch is similar in that way. It is a story about what they believe happened in the past in Genesis chapter 6. I have a handout for you on the back as you leave that uh, takes passages from the book of Enoch and intermingles it with this Genesis 6 passage so you can see how their explanation fits. Now, I didn't give that to you because I don't want you to be reading it while I'm preaching, okay? Because it is, it is secondary to the meaning of what's going on here, okay? secondary to the meaning. Let me just review for you real quick, and then we'll get into uh, our passage. From First Enoch, we find that uh, what the belief that angelic beings called watchers took human wives and had children. The watchers also taught humans how to become prolific in war, seduction, and witchcraft. Their mixed children were the Nephilim, these giant men, and they consumed earth's resources and dominated regular humans. The Lord punished the watchers by putting them in chains within the abyss and covered them with darkness. You will find that referred to in the New Testament, okay, in the book of Jude and uh, 2 Peter. The punishment for the Nephilim, that's the offspring, the giant offspring, was that upon their death, their spirits were bound to wander the earth until the final judgment. In other words, they were not, they, they were not, their spirits were not created in heaven like all the other divine or angelic beings. So therefore, they were not allowed to be in God's presence. So they were condemned to roam the earth without their bodies once their bodies died. And in the New Testament, these would be the unclean spirits that would inhabit uh, people in which Jesus cast in one incident, cast them into a, a group of pigs. Okay, So that's, that's in, in Jesus' day, that would be the, what the beliefs were about where demons came from. Okay? Now you've probably got a lot of questions. You can email me. You can pick up the handout on the way out. Okay? And look at that, there's, there's things on there, but let's refocus now, because we need to come back to our passage, understanding that short background of what uh, is believed to have happened around this passage. We see here, 
with the sons of God in this passage today a repeat of the pattern that we saw with Eve and Adam, right? We see the, they see, Eve saw the fruit of the tree of, knowledge, of good and knowledge. She desired it, she took it, and then there was disaster. Here we see now on the flip side, angelic beings. So there's a divine rebellion going on here. Because we know that, you know, where did those guys come from? Well, the Bible is, is telling us here. Here's, here's the first, or the, excuse me, the second divine rebellion. First being the serpent, Satan. Now we have these angelic beings rebelling against God. And we see a repeat of the pattern. They see the sons of men, they desire, or the daughters of men. They desire them, they take them, and it results in a disaster. This intermingling of angel and human was a rebellion against God's good order. It was not after their own kind. Everything God created on earth was supposed to multiply after its kind, and the angels were not able to multiply because they had no mandate from God to go forth, multiply, and fill the earth. That was not their mandate. Angels are always referred to as males. Their place of dwelling was with God in the spiritual realm. His presence was to be enough for them. Again, this intermingling of angel and human was a rebellion against God's good order. The angels that rebelled, these watchers, were put in chains within the abyss and covered with darkness. We even hear one of the demons say in the New Testament to Jesus, Are you here to cast us into the deep or into the abyss? So they are covered with darkness and they are placed in chains. But what of the human women who are involved in this rebellion? What about those men and women who learned the ways of war, seduction, and witchcraft? What about their judgment? That's when we come into Genesis 6-3. And it's another difficult passage, but let's look at it and we'll make an observation and move on. Verse 3, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That word abide, uh, you have to translate it based on the context. And so you may see other translations that will use the word strive. My spirit shall not strive with man or contend with man. Another translation, remain, my spirit shall not remain in man forever. So there's a little bit of uh, difficulty. What does this mean? Does it mean, uh, there's two major interpretations about what this means. Does it mean that humanity's lifespan is now going to be limited to around 120 years? And we do have some people after the flood that live longer than 120 years, but I don't think there's any that make it to 200 Right? And, and everything falls well short of the ages prior to the flood that we see. So, this could be where God begins to limit mankind's age or, or the length of life. Another interpretation asks or, does, or proposes that this verse means that there are only 120 years until the flood judgment is going to come. This argument also has its merits as it seems to fit God having patience, as we find in 1 Peter, and we'll look at that in just a minute, 1 Peter 3.18, if you want to turn there, or it's on your handout. It seems to fit with God's patience with these rebels while Noah prepared the ark. 
Jesus, according to 1 Peter, after his resurrection, went and proclaimed victory to the imprisoned angels. Okay, in the book of Enoch, Enoch is told to go to the... The angels beg for mercy, and God tells them they'll have none. Okay, and so he goes before the uh, watchers and tells them, nope, not going to happen. And, and 1 Peter, Peter sees Jesus as an Enoch-type figure. He's now had victory over the forces of darkness, and he goes and he proclaims that victory to these spirits that have been imprisoned. Let's read 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So in his spirit, after his resurrection, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, these, in, these watchers that were imprisoned from Genesis. Because they formerly did not obey. When, was, when did they not obey? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So God sees, or, or, or this wickedness occurs, God says, 120 years, and then I'm done with these guys. I tend to fall on the side that it's the 120 years until the judgment of the flood. That's my interpretation. Um, regardless of which viewpoint you take, whether it's limiting the age of man or there's 120 years into the flood, the point is, remains the same. God limits the time of rebellion. God limits the time of rebellion. And I want to speak to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're living in rebellion to God, let me just say, you only have so long. You can only live in rebellion to God for so long. After that, you will face God in judgment and you will be punished eternally in hell. But Christ came to pay for your rebellion on the cross. If you'll repent of your rebellion, turn from it, and follow Christ as your king, trust him as your savior, he will save you. He will save you. He's your only hope because... There's only so much time God will put up with rebellion. God only waits so long until he deals with rebellion. But then we also see in verses 5 through 7 that the Lord will judge wickedness. Humans who were already sinful took their newfound knowledge gained from the watchers concerning war, seduction, and witchcraft and became abundantly sinful. As we read this passage, I want you to take note of the emotions that the Lord feels as he looks upon his creation, which is supposed to be reflecting his image, but instead does the opposite. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is it. The Lord has seen enough. 
It's time to start over with a new creation. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever started something and then partway into it regretted that you ever started in the first place? I, look, there's been several times. As I was praying to the Lord about this passage, I'm like, Lord, what illustration from my own life where this has happened? And then suddenly, you know, all these things. Started. Let me share just one, okay? When the kids were young, Kim wanted a Jeep Cherokee. Do you remember this? Kim wanted a Jeep Cherokee. Now, there was no way we could afford a Jeep Cherokee. But a friend's friend had an old, worn-out Jeep Cherokee that wouldn't run. And it was cheap. <clears throat> so I got the idea, hey, I'll just buy this Jeep Cherokee. And in my spare time, I'll restore it. There's only one problem. I'm mechanically challenged. I mean, I don't even know what I was thinking. I mean, I got saved because the engine wasn't working in my car, and my cousin was a mechanic and put it in, and he witnessed to me while I'm handing him tools. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. And we didn't have YouTube videos for some of you younger folks. I couldn't just look it up and figure it out. <clears throat> Not to mention I had two kids that were, they were needy kids. No, they were good kids, but we were busy. So that Jeep, Cher Jeep Cherokee just sat in my driveway. And so every day when I'm pulling in, I have this reminder. You can't do it. Right? This, is, this is there. It grieved me that I ever talked myself into buying this thing. And, and it just sat there. And so it was a daily reminder to me. And I regretted it. Eventually, I gave up. Sold it at a loss. I mean, it even cost me, right? It grieved me to my wallet, if you would say. And Kim would never have her Jeep Cherokee. In Genesis 6 here, we have the Lord grieved to his very heart over man's wickedness. He regrets that he ever created humanity in the first place. He's done. He's ready to wipe out all living things on the earth and just start over. But there's one problem. He made a promise, and the Lord remains true to his promises. The Lord cannot act contrary to his character. And the first readers of Genesis would have also experienced this was happening. They were, these books were being given to them on the way to the promised land. They've already experienced Exodus 34, 6, and they know about Moses' encounter with the Lord. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord spells out his character to Moses, who then tells the people. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's our key characteristic this morning faithfulness. The Lord is abounding in faithfulness. He is trustworthy, in another, another way to put it. He is trustworthy. He's unchanging. You can trust the Lord because the Lord is abundantly faithful. Whatever He says, He will do. And whatever promise He makes, He will keep. Now what promise did He make previous to this? What were the people looking for as we looked at the seed of the or the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman? What were they looking for? 
the promised seed of the woman. When pronouncing judgment upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. But then he goes to the singular, He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be a death blow brought by the promised seed of the woman upon the serpent. Has that happened in our story yet? In Genesis, no, it has not. It has not. The Lord had promised that the woman's offspring, out of that offspring would arise a singular offspring, the offspring, who would deal a victory blow to the serpent. And he hasn't come yet. So even though there was great rebellion and that wickedness was abounding upon the earth, the Lord must remain true to his promise. So we come to Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor can be translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because the Lord will keep his promises. In his faithfulness, the Lord displays another one of his character traits, grace. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. Noah here is favored, not because he merits it, not because he earned it, but because the Lord showed grace to him. The hope for the promised offspring would continue through Noah. In a world that deserved utter destruction, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One person wrote, No one escapes divine judgment apart from grace. And if you're here this morning, and you're living in rebellion to God, let me say to you, you can be saved by God's grace through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, no one will stand before God one day and say, Hey, I saved myself, God. Glad to be here. No. We all deserved what these people living in Noah's day deserved. And by no merit of our own, God by His grace, saves us. Now, from our perspective, that's us repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Christ. Won't you repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Even when rebellion and wickedness abounded, the Lord, according to His character, remained true to His promise. And eventually, the Lord fulfilled this promise. He fulfilled his promise of a serpent-crushing offspring in Jesus Christ. But what about us today? Christ has come. He's been resurrected. He's at the Father's right hand. He's ruling and reigning from heaven. Well, according to Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and I've put Acts 2 in your handout. We're not going to read that, but I put it there so you can read it after the service. But in Acts 2, verse 17 and following, the giving of the Holy Spirit marked the beginning of the last days. 
Why is this age we lived in called the last days? Because all that has been fulfilled, or excuse me, all has been fulfilled in Christ except his return in judgment and recreating the world. You see, God's still going to remake the world. And he hasn't done it yet. But all those scriptures that pointed to Christ, they've been fulfilled. We're living in the last days. The next thing that happens is Christ returns to judge the world. No more needs to be fulfilled. How much time do we have before this judgment comes and the new creation? A thousand years? Maybe. 120 years like they had here? Maybe. One year? Days? Hours? We don't know. You see, folks, we're living in the last days. We have been for 2,000 years right now. Oh, the Lord is patient and long-suffering. And he's calling people out of this world. Be saved. Trust my son for salvation. But one day, there'll be no more waiting. And judgment will come. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll finish by looking through this passage because it relates to these last days. Because as, we, as, as God has shown grace to Noah at this point, according to what I believe, uh, uh, interpret this passage, there's 120 years until the flood comes. So those were the last days of Noah. As Noah lived in the last days before the promised flood, we live in the last days before the judgment of this world and the new creation. Peter, who preached on Pentecost about the last days, tells us in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 13, about these last days. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But things aren't continuing, excuse me, things haven't continued as they were since creation, have they? What are these scoffers overlooking? Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So that's creation. Verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood judgment. In other words, things haven't just continued like they were. God's already judged sin once, but he showed grace to Noah and brought him through the judgment because he needed to fulfill all things in Christ. But now Christ has come, verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, the flood was a preview or a type of the actual final judgment. He says that's what the scoffers overlook, but then he tells us not to overlook something. One fact here, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. 
In other words, he's very patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How much time do we have left? We don't know, but if you're here and you're not saved, now's the time. Now's the time. Repent. Believe the gospel. Christians, now is the time to share the gospel. Do you have family and loved ones who are unsaved and living in rebellion? Tell them about Jesus. There's a coming judgment. We don't know when, but we know according to God's character, it is going to happen. He cannot act contrary to his character. This world will be remade. Now is the time to share the gospel, beloved. We don't know when, but look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then what happens? The heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Your sins are going to be exposed. What you do in the dark will be brought into the light on judgment day. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens, which will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we ought to live like the kingdom's already come. Because it has, in a way, right? The, the kingdom, we have a king, and we're living his kingdom out here in the church. But one day, the whole world's going to become his kingdom. But only the righteous will dwell there. Follow Jesus. It's worth it. As Noah lived in the last days before the promised flood, we live in the last days before the judgment of this world and the new creation. Even as rebellion and wickedness abound around us and in us, the Lord, according to his character, remains true to his promises. One day he will judge this world and all who have ever lived on it. Christian, is your life characterized by holiness? Is it apparent that Jesus Christ is your king? This world lives in rebellion against the, the Lord. And what he says is good, they say is bad. From distorted sexual ethics and the devaluing of marriage to the mistreatment of other humans in a multitude of ways. From sex traf trafficking to unjust laws to violence. Sin and injustice are rampant. And you may be tempted to join in the mocking and the revelry that appeals to your flesh. Giving in to the hatred of others that causes these violent injustices. Don't do it. Don't do it. We have a greater king and a greater kingdom. Those things are why the judgment is coming. Follow King Jesus now. Let us display God's good rule in our own lives, and in our church. Follow your king. Now, some of you Christians may be here this morning and you're struggling with sin. There's this battle that goes on. 
because we've been saved and we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ, but we're not there yet, right? And your struggle with sin, Satan likes to come along and condemn us in that. You're not worthy, he'll say. He'll tell you what you deserve. Let me assure you that God remains faithful to his character. While the Lord expressed regret over creating rebellious humans, he does not regret saving you. One of the most marvelous things to sit around and and to think about, to ponder, is that God knows the beginning from the end. Okay? And he knew, he knew how bad you were Before he saved you. But beloved, he knows. He knew about the sin that you committed yesterday. And he chose to save you. He doesn't regret saving you. He knows your weaknesses. He knew the penalty he would pay on the cross. For your sins and mine. Times may be dark in your life right now. Like Noah, you may be surrounded by people living in rebellion and wickedness, but God does not regret saving you. He will remain true to his promise to save you to the uttermost and to judge those who reject him. Some of you may be partaking in sin, but you're not struggling with it. You say you're a Christian, but you're not battling this thing. You're just living in sin. Now maybe you're hiding it. You don't want others to know about it. But it's not hidden from God. And one day, it's going to be exposed at the judgment. God will not tolerate rebellion. It may be that really you're not a Christian at all. I urge you this morning, repent of your sin and trust Christ as your Savior. Christians are not to live in the sin for which Christ was judged. Yes, we struggle, but there needs to be a struggle. It needs to be a struggle. There's coming a new creation. But those who are not part of the new creation will suffer eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Rebellion and wickedness abound in our day, beloved, but this world is not the ultimate. We have a greater home. We have a greater land. We have a greater kingdom. And we have the greatest king. Follow him with your life. Even when rebellion and wickedness abound, the Lord remains true to his promises. And God gives grace for life, beloved. Will you trust his character despite your circumstances? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word in which you give us your heart as to how rebellion and wickedness grieves your heart. And we also see that you will not tolerate it forever. And we're given this preview of the final judgment. Lord, stir in us a heart for holiness, a heart to share the gospel with those who are in rebellion right now. Oh, Father, we all have friends and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers who, who need salvation. Give us boldness to share Christ with them. Help us to be 
heralds of your goodness and your righteousness and to warn them of the judgment that's coming. Father, help them and us to see and realize that hell is real and that this punishment is eternal. Father, work in hearts. Open the eyes of the blinded this morning. Help them to see their sin and your judgment and then the beauty of Christ. And I pray that they will repent of their sin and trust Christ as the judgment for their sin today. And Father, as Christians, we want to thank you for your grace to us in saving us. And then Father, we want to thank you for your faithfulness, for your trustworthiness, Lord, that you cannot act contrary to your character and that you have saved us and you will save us and you will conform us into the image of your Son. And one day you will bring us to yourself. And we rejoice in that, Lord. I pray that you will strengthen those who are weak at this time and struggling in their lives with wickedness and rebellion. I pray that you will help them, strengthen them, and save them from their sin. And Father, help them to realize that you do not regret one moment saving them. Because you knew them. You knew their struggles. Oh, God, thank you that you are faithful. And Father, help us to be people of blessing, to bless others and strengthen one another as we journey through this world looking forward to the new creation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.